0: We have been in a uh, really neat series uh, based on a book called Soul Keeping that um, for the last several weeks I shared with you, probably other than the scriptures, this book has been probably the most powerful read in my life in the last couple of years as it just addressed uh, this reality that we all believe that such a thing as a soul exists. And uh, we have a difficult time articulating what the soul is and what it does. And if we agree that it exists and we don't know what it is or what it does, it's very hard to take care of it and manage it and know what it needs. And so for the last several weeks, we've been walking through how to care for our souls. And last week, um, I appreciate Pastor David, who was here first service, but uh, uh, shared about how the soul needs rest and recovery and uh, all of of the things it needs in order to... uh, Uh, Be successful and feel energized and today we're going to talk about something in the core of our identity and our souls that I think um, Will be a little bit difficult for some of us at first to kind of to get a to get a hold on But I think uh, it will challenge us in a way that is really really powerful And today we're going to talk about the fact that our souls are designed and absolutely in our cores need freedom We're designed to be free. When we were first designed, when God reached into the clay and the mud and the dirt and he lifted out and formed the man and breathed his breath of life into that dirt and it became a living soul. The environment that we were in, we had absolute freedom. We had dominion over the animals. We were in control. We were naming things, right? We were saying, okay, you're a tiger. You're a platypus, okay? You're an elephant, right? We were naming things. We had power and authority, and then this catastrophic moment happens. Now, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get lost here for a second, but I just want you to catch this. God, catch the order of creation. He creates the earth. Then he creates the man, breathes life in him, has relationship with that man. Then he gives that man a job, says you're going to have dominion over the earth. You're going to take care of the earth. You're going to manage this resource. And then he gives him a wife. Fellas, that's the order. You meet God. Establish a relationship with him. You get a job. And then God brings the wife in, right? Come on now, that's how that's supposed to work. So we, uh, we gotta keep reciprocating. We gotta pass that on to the next generation, remind them that's the order of creation, how will those things work. So anyways, that's just a free one. But in the heart of all of this is this understanding that in the core of our identities is this desire and this passion to be free. And as I was kind of processing this, I was remembering a, a very powerful uh, movie that I saw um, years back, but it was about a slave ship called the Amistad. Some of you have seen maybe the movie, but I'll give you a little summary, and I'm going to show you just one scene from that movie as we get started here. But on July 2nd, 1839, 53 captive Africans aboard the Amistad, a slave schooner, broke out of their chains and stealthily snuck up on the main deck where they killed two crew members and disarmed the rest. Having thus seized control of the ship, they attempted to sail back to their homeland, only to be deceived into heading north instead of east. Over the next eight weeks, they traveled about 1,400 miles from Cuba to Long Island, New York, until the Navy picked them up and reincarcerated them. And the movie is the story of these 53 Africans going through the legal process to try to establish that they've been wrongfully enslaved and what is in the core of a person who desires to be free. And so take a look at this with me. I have watched that probably... Half a dozen or eight times this week, I think I've gotten emotional every time because there is something powerful in the core and in the soul of a person who desires and longs to be free. And it's inside us, and it wants to burst out. And I'm going to have to gather myself because I just watched that an hour ago, and I'm emotional again already because it's just true. And freedom is complicated. It's this complicated thing. We struggle with what freedom is and what freedom isn't, what freedom should allow us to do and what it shouldn't do. Because the reality is, if taken to its extreme, freedom can become something that seems destructive. I should be able to have whatever I want, right? That's freedom. And so freedom is a difficult thing for us to get our mind around, because the problem is this, if I want something and I take it and I want to have it, is that my freedom? If I want something and you don't let me have it, have you impended and impinged on my freedom? And desire is good, but when you want something too much, it can threaten to take God's place in your life and lead you to making a bad decision. You see, desire is a good thing. God put desires in our heart. He designed us to desire things like freedom. But when we want something too much, it threatens to take God's place in your life and can lead you to make a bad decision. When I was uh, about 16, my friend, (laughs) I I joked in first service I wasn't gonna use his real name and then I did anyways, so he's not gonna listen to the podcast anyways. (laughs) So, his name's Kevin, and he was one of my best friends, When like in third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, we were best friends. Middle school, we were still close to each other. High school, we weren't quite as close, but uh, he was a year older than me, and so he got his license before me. And uh, there's a thing, come on now, you know this, when you get your license, and you experience that freedom for the first time, You're just like, I can go anywhere. You get in the car, roll the window down, except for where it rains all the time, so turn the air on, Uh, (laughs) the defroster up to max, and you cruise out, right? Now, Kevin's parents, they were pretty strict. So Kevin hadn't kind of done too many wild things up to this point, but he had some freedom now, and he wanted to experience and explore that freedom. So Kevin made a choice because he wanted to be free, and he said, I'm gonna go hang out at the reservoir tonight with a bunch of my friends, even though I don't have permission to go. So in the middle of the night, he got into his, I think it was like a 72 Mustang, and it was uh, it was a Cobra Mustang. It was bright orange with a big Cobra head on the cover, right, on the hood. It was one of those awesome things. Now, I don't know how he snuck out in this car, because when you turned it on, it was like, right, but uh, he's some. I think he rolled it down the hill and then fired it up at the bottom. I don't know what he did, but he snuck out. And he went to go hang out with a group of troublemakers who were hanging out at this reservoir that used to be kind of one of the hot spots when you're in high school to go hang out in the middle of the night. So it's like 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, and he's out there. And this group of friends that he's with, there's a reason that his parents don't want him hanging out with this group of friends. They like to, um, it's legal now, so I think we can talk about it, but, but uh, they like to smoke a funny leaf and they're out there doing that thing in the, in the, in the uh, parking lot of this reservoir, and uh, Kevin's experiencing freedom like he's never had before. It's two in the morning, he's not home, he didn't ask permission, he's wherever he wants to be, he's experiencing incredible freedom, he's doing whatever he wants to do, and then suddenly he hears whoop whoop, and sees some blue and red lights. Now Kevin is new to having experienced freedom, And in his 16-year-old brain, now, I don't know if we've had this conversation before, but a man's brain is not developed at 16. It's just not, right? Where's my 16? 17-year-old is the worst year, and then 18, it like starts, and then we start moving from there. That's that's 15 years of youth ministry, I'm just telling you. And so at 16, his brain's not really developed. His logic and reasoning is not kind of there. He's got no wisdom yet, no life experience, no sense of consequences. So he looks around and says, there's like eight of us, three or four cars and one cop. They can't bust all of us. Run. He wants to be free. So he jumps into his bright orange 1972, I think it was, Mustang with a giant cobra on the hood. Fires it up. And he hauls out of this reservoir down this windy road or whatever. What Kevin hasn't realized is that radios are invented. And so it's not difficult for a cop to go, there's a bright orange Mustang driving down rapid speeds. from the... So Kevin makes it about a mile before he's surrounded, right? And, and so he thought he was going to be more free, and now he's arrested, hands on the hood, like the whole thing, right? He gets arrested. They release him, book him, and then he goes to court. And now, this is hilarious, they give him community service, and they order him to go to a scared straight program. Now, I don't know if you know what scared straight is, But Scared Straight is where they take young people who are acting a fool and they put them in big boy prison with big boy prisoners and have these prisoners get in their face and yell at them about what prison life is going to be like. So Kevin has to go to this Scared Straight program and he's telling me the story using vocabulary that I can't use in church. But essentially... He's saying that person to part, he had to walk person to person, and they're just in their face. And these criminals are uh, these lifetime criminals are spitting and yelling and saying, "What life's going to be like for this good-looking 16-year-old kid if he ends up in prison? That they're going to experience less. He's never going to have less freedom than he has right now. And he better get his life straight." So here's the thing I want you to catch: sometimes the pursuit of freedom will lead us to places that eventually we make bad decisions and we end up losing freedom. See, the ability to have anything you want can actually cost you your freedom. So freedom is this weird paradox of I want what I want, but if I get what I want, it may cost me what I want. So how are we supposed to understand freedom? It's this difficult tension that we experience. And then we start talking to people who know Jesus and grew up in church and have church background. And we start talking to them, and they have two strong lines of thought that they've been taught. Come on, my church folks, you know this. You know Galatians 5.1, that it's for freedom that Christ came and set us free, that God wants freedom for you. He wants you to experience freedom. And then we also hear, oh, to obey is better than sacrifice. And so we have this weird tension of, does God want me to be free, or does God want me to obey? And we don't know what to do with that. Which is it, God? And so we go from scenario to scenario, and it's kind of like this. This is my giant coin. And on one side, it says, free. And on the other side, it says, obey. And we go through life trying to figure out, okay, which scenario is this, God? Is this a freedom scenario? Am I free? Or is this an obey scenario? I have to obey. And so we, we walk through life and we go, okay, it's time to pay my taxes. But I'm free. Free at last. Do I have to pay my taxes, obey, or can I ditch my taxes? Free. Which one is it, God? And we flip the coin. And it is, I'm free. Don't pay your taxes. Your pastor just said, that's absurd, obviously, right? But we're not sure. We go, okay, well, maybe the, maybe the thing is this. You know, I've, I've, uh, I've been married for a long time, and this guy's been giving me attention, and I might just want to go spend some time with him and see. And, you know, I, I'm free. There's not, no harm in that, is there? And we go, okay, should, am I, should I obey or am I free? And we flip the coin. Obey. Ugh, fine. I guess I won't do it right? Maybe those are too obvious and too easy. Maybe the one that makes more sense to you is, well, God said all food is now clean and good for me, so I'll have that 13th brownie. Free or obey? I'm free! right? And we, and we consume like we have no boundaries, like there's nothing there that would be a consequence for us. Maybe it's as, uh, a little more personal, like, you know, I really hate my job, and uh, I just think, you know, I don't really if I don't work. I just Whatever, it'll be fine. Should I go to work today? Should I be disciplined? Should I be faithful? Should I be a good steward of my resources? Or am I free? Can I hang out and watch soap operas at the sports center or whatever it is? What is it, God? And we flip the coin, I'm free, And you see we like walk through life with this tension. Which is it, God? Am I free or do I have to obey? Am I free or do I have to obey? And then maybe you haven't uh, been around church people very much or you've been around church people a lot but you haven't been coming to church for a while and part of why you haven't been coming to church for a while is this. Sometimes not only do we get tied up on when do we are free and when do we obey, we get arrogant because we think, well, we obey more than someone else obeys so we are better than you. And you've been around church people who act like, you know what your problem is? You just don't obey as much as I do. And we start casting out this leverage like if you just obeyed harder, if you just obeyed a little bit more, you would get your life right. And you've been looking at the church going, I like Jesus and I like this talk about freedom. But as soon as I get around his people, there's a lot of obedience in there. There's a lot of you have to do this and you can't do this and you have to think like this, you gotta be conservative, and you gotta like whatever it is, right? That you've locked into, you've got to think this way. There's too much obey. But when you hear about Jesus, there's all this freedom. And so you've been looking from the outside in, wondering, what is going on here? And then as you are honest about the state and the core of what's inside of you, you desire to be free. And so you have this tension. I'd be okay with having a conversation about God, but I know that the moment I have a conversation about God, the first thing you're going to do is tell me, i got to dress differently, think differently, look differently, behave differently, and I'm not interested in all of that. So our soul cries for freedom, but we have this common perception that our faith limits our freedom, and we find ourselves stuck in this tension. So what is it? Does following God infringe on my freedom? does it give me more freedom how does this work and I think in order to do this we've got to start by talking about who God is and what does God really want who God is and what does God really want from us have you ever wanted a relationship with someone to go deeper than they wanted it to go come on now you've been friend zoned you go in for the hug and they give you the fist bump right? You go in, you go in for the hug and they're like, woo, good to see you. They give you the fist bump. You wanted the relationship to go deeper than they wanted it to go. Or maybe it's something more, more personal than that. Maybe it's your kids and you've wanted to have a deeper relationship with your kids. And every time you ask your kids, hey, how was your day at school today? They go, fine. Did you learn anything? Yes. What'd you do? Nothing. And you're like, come on, I want more from you. And you're getting this business relationship. The next thing they ask, is, when's dinner going to be ready? And you're like, seriously, tell me about your day. What's going on in your head? Let me into your life. I want to have a deeper, more personal relationship with you. Or you call and you text and they don't respond. They treat you politely. Maybe it's a work relationship. And you're like, hey, how was your weekend? How did it go? And you're like, hey, what's going on? What's going on with your kids? And they say, hey, did you get that report done on time? And you're like, oh, okay, we have a professional relationship. Like, We're not going to be able to have a personal relationship. And what's ironic to me is I get into this book, and the picture that I see throughout all of human history is the picture of a God who's coming in for the hug and a people who are like fist bump. God who's coming in for intimate, close relationship and a people who are like, yeah, that's cool, but... I'm not so sure about what this means. How do I know this is true? Everywhere I go through the Bible, look at the way that God identifies himself. He says, I'm a father. He identifies himself as a father. As a matter of fact, he doesn't just say father. He uses the term Abba, which the the scriptures uh, correctly use for him. And it literally means daddy. He says, I want to be daddy. He uses a metaphor of, of a shepherd. And he says, I wanna be a shepherd for you who cares for his sheep. I wanna be the shepherd that when, though there's a hundred, if one of them goes missing, I'll leave the 99 behind to personally invest and be with the one who went missing. I wanna know you. As a matter of fact, the picture of how a shepherd took care of a sheep that wandered is that a shepherd would literally break the leg of that sheep so that that sheep would have to be carried until it healed so that that sheep would learn to trust the shepherd to not leave the shepherd behind. He says, I want to give you a picture of the relationship I want to have with you, of intimacy and trust. I will carry you while you heal so that you learn that you can trust me. He says, I want to be a shepherd. I want to be a father. I want you to recognize the kind of depth of relationship I have with you. Think about the picture in the garden with his creation that he's created that's now rebelled away from him. And he's calling out into the garden, where are you? Like he doesn't know what have you done? Like he doesn't know. Why are you covered? Like he doesn't know this personal intimate relationship all throughout the scriptures. We get this picture of a God that from the very beginning wanted to know us personally. You get to the end of the story to revelation and look at the picture he paints. Revelation chapter three he says this. He says, uh, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock Look at the relational leverage he wants with us. He says, I knock. If you just hear my voice and you open the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with you and you with me. He's like, hey, you guys. He doesn't say, here I am. I kick down the door and I throw you over my shoulder and I haul you away from the fiery pits of hell. He says, no. He says, if you would just Open the door and relationally invite me in. I want to know you intimately. I want to know who you are. Think about the people you share meals with, the intimacy that you have there. You don't schedule a meal with someone you don't want to know, right? right? You sit down, you talk. Unless it's just a pure business and you're just morbid, we want to know people, right? You don't schedule a point. Listen, when you really want to know someone and they say, okay, well, I can give you 20 minutes, you just ignore that. You're like, "No, no, that's not worth it. Either give me some time, and let's do this thing, or it's okay. That's not it. And here's God saying, I'm trying to get time with you. God, time and time, from the beginning to the end of this book, approaching us relationally. saying, I want to know you. I want to be with you. I want to have an understanding of who you are. I want you to know who I am. And so why is this so important? Because that's the whole context of how he reveals what he has for us. And so I was fascinated by this. So I was thinking about how, how we feel so often that freedom and obedience are the opposite sides of a coin. So I started thinking about, okay, so God gives us the law, the Ten Commandments, and he breaks it down for us and says, this is, this is how you have to behave. But then I started thinking, think about the context of the Ten Commandments, Think think about where they come in history. The Israelites have been enslaved for generations, 400 years. He sends in Moses, a free man. He sends in Moses and says, you go tell them that they're my people and you tell Pharaoh to let them go. You know what's fascinating? He doesn't send Moses in and say, you go give them a list and say, if anyone will obey these things, I'll pull you out of slavery. He just goes in and says, you tell them I want to be their God. Then... Not only does he tell anyone to be their God, he says, I'm gonna go fight for you to break you out of slavery. And here comes plague after plague after plague after plague. Here comes people coming out of Egypt. Here comes waters parting and people marching like on dry land. Here comes waters crashing down and taking out their enemies. Now, there's a picture there of God always has your back, but that's a whole other message that we're not gonna get into today. But there's a picture of uh, I'm with you. I've got your back. I will lead you out. Then he says, here's what I want you to learn how to do. You follow me. I'm gonna give you a pillar of fire at night so you don't get lost. I'm gonna give you a pillar of clouds during the day so you know where to go. I'm gonna give you food and water even though you're in the desert and I'm only gonna give you enough for each day so that you learn every day you can trust me more and more and more. And we mess it up. We immediately start hoarding more food because we think, oh, you're trying to give me a hug but fist bump, I got it. I see the food on the ground. I'll put it in my pocket and try to make it. And we get sick and we die and we lose out on the provisions and the blessings of God because we rejoice the presence of God, but here's God time and time again, relational context, relational. Then he takes us out into the desert and says, I've got a land that I've prepared for you. And it's a good land. It's flowing with milk and honey. There's grapes and they're like this, it's giant. You're going to love this place. He goes, not only do I want to give you my presence and be your God, not only do I want you to be free, Not only do I want you to follow me so you know where to go and be provided for, I'm going to give you a place. And in that place, you're going to have an identity and a purpose. You're going to know who you are as a people. All of these things are available for you. And then come the Ten Commandments. See, I think sometimes we think the Ten Commandments came first. We think God said, hey, you're in Egypt. You want to get out of Egypt? Here's the path. Follow these commandments. We lead with the Ten Commandments like the behaviors are the key to the presence of God. But the behaviors came later. Now listen to how he frames the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. You can go there and read them. I'm just going to give you the first verse, first two verses. It says, and then God spoke these words. God spoke all these words. And he said, said, listen, I am the Lord your God, listen to this, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is the next verse is the first of the Ten Commandments. He says, before I give you the Ten Commandments, let me remind you something. I'm the God who took you out of slavery. Why is it that we believe that the next ten verses are going to be, and here's how you go back into slavery? I brought you out of slavery. Now here's how you do all the things I want you to do so that you are good boys and girls and make daddy happy. Why is it that we think that the next thing that's coming out of his mouth is somehow a return into slavery? He's telling us right from the beginning, I just got you out of slavery. That's the context of the Ten Commandments. I just fed you. I just provided you for you. I just showed you the land that you're going to go to and the destiny that I have for you. And I got you out of slavery. And because of that, here come the Ten Commandments. You see the context of the Ten Commandments, how they they matter that way? I'm going to paraphrase them for you because otherwise we'll get lost in a lot of, of verbiage. But he lays out these Ten Commandments. Now, I noticed something fascinating about this. The first commandment is this. You shall have no other gods before me. He says, listen, I'm the God who got you out of slavery. When you were in slavery, you were subservient to another culture and another culture's gods, ideologies, the way they lived, and those things oppressed you and kept you in slavery. Don't go back to that. Don't do that again. If you try, and every time throughout history that the people of God try to merge cultures with another God, with the love of money, with whatever it is, every time we try to merge with another God and let that God become first, what does it do to us? Puts us back in what? Slavery. He's saying, I got you out of slavery, so don't put any other gods before me. Why? Because that's how you stay out of what? Slavery. The second one. You shall not make any idols. He says, Listen, I know this is gonna be hard for you, but there's gonna be things that you're gonna wanna give your life to, that you're gonna wanna put first in your life. And those things that you try to put first in your life and give your life to are going to have a tendency to rule and to run your life. And if you make an idol, if you make something that you say, this is what success looks like. This is what my dream now is. This is the thing I have to have more than anything else, more than God, more than anything else. And you start chasing that. You know what it's going to do to you? It's going to enslave you. It doesn't want you to be free It wants to capture you, control you, control your thoughts, control your mind, and suck you into that. That's why he says you shouldn't make any idols. And I love the third one. He says, and you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I had to think about this one for a little while. Because what does this mean? And literally it means you won't falsify who God is and what he stands for. He goes, you won't take me. Don't take me and give attributes and characteristics to me that aren't me. Don't use my name in a way that doesn't represent me. And we do this. The church has done this. People do this. They say, oh, because, because of God, I have to behave a certain way, act a certain way, do something different. And he's like, don't, don't put that on me. I came to take you out of slavery. Don't make it my fault, my responsibility. Don't manipulate the characteristics of God. But here's the thing is we, we, we think God should work differently. We think God should work like a vending machine, right? I need $1. twenty-five so that I can make God happy. So if I put $1.25 in, God will give me what I want. And God's like, don't take my name in vain that way. That's not how I work. I'm a father, a shepherd. I'm the creator. I'm not a vending machine. Oh, God's a cosmic cop who just wants to write me a ticket and get me in trouble. And I got to make him happy. So don't speed. Don't go too fast. Don't do something negative that you think you shouldn't do. Don't do that. And God's like, stop using my name in vain. That's not what I'm like. You can't manipulate me that way. He says, don't do that. Why? Because when we do that, we move away from our identity and from his identity. And what does that do? It brings us back into slavery. We start thinking that our behaviors are somehow going to dictate God's love for us. He's like, don't do that. Don't take my name in vain. (laughs) Number four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Last week, we talked about rest and how our soul needs rest. God looks down at his people. They've been slaving literally away. And he says, you're not appreciating and experiencing my creation the way I designed you to do it. When I gave you this earth and put you on it, I designed you to enjoy it. And you got to work. I designed you to work and I designed you to rest. And I demonstrated for you what that looks like. I love this picture that on the sixth day, God created man. But on the seventh day, God rested. One day. One day into creation, one moment, Adam's naming things. You're a goat, you're a zebra, you're a platypus, whatever. The next minute, God's chilling. He's like, what are we doing now? He's like, we're resting. And the picture I always get is like from Mount Rainier to Mount St. Helens, there's a hammock just stretched across, and God's just chilling in and his legs over the side, his hat's down low. And he's just like, what up? And Adam's like, that's how we do this? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, this is awesome. God's like, rest up because women is coming. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I tease, come back. It's okay. I'm teasing, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. <laughs> come on, ladies, we're on the same team. Same team, same team. <laughs> oh, man. So God's like, you got to enjoy it. He's like, don't, don't. Now, listen, you know this. You know people who work so hard and never rest, and are, are, are driven. They're, they're just, work. they're given, and they don't enjoy. And you know what? Those people aren't free. They don't enjoy. They don't rest. Their families are left behind. Everybody's left behind. They don't have any of that freedom. God's like, don't do it that way. That's not how I designed you. That's not in your design. How about this one? This one uh, is pretty fun. Honor your father and your mother. God and I had words about this this week. <laughs> I was like, have you met some of these fathers and mothers? That's a hard command. That's a hard command, God. But here's the thing. God understands. We talked about this week one. Part of our soul makeup is the relational component of who we are. God understands in our core identity of and our core relationships, he wants us to have health there. He designed us to have health there. Now, we don't get to control because of other people's decisions and choices, whether or not they're in a position where we can give them honor. But if they are, we're designed to operate that way. And, and here's the thing. You want to know someone who's not free? Talk to me about someone who's got daddy issues or mommy issues and unresolved tension with, their, with, with the people who were supposed to give the most intimate care and, and closeness to them. Talk to me about someone who has those issues, and I'll, t- I'll show you someone who's not free. I'll tell you someone who's staying up at night, who's carrying wounds, who's projecting their pain on someone. I'm, t- I'm just telling you. So God says, don't get yourself stuck there. And as much as it's in your control, honor your father and your mother. Give forgiveness away. Then it gets a little more practical. By the way, don't go killing fools. Don't murder. Don't kill people. Don't just take it out. It's like, seriously, God? Listen, I'm in line. The line says 10 items or less. She's got 39 items. Can I kill her? Am I free? <laughs> Can I just choke her a little? Can I just bump her car out of the way? Which is it, God? Am I free? Oh, obey. He says, don't murder people. Now, listen, I'm going to be honest with you. Most of you are not in danger, well, hopefully, of actually murdering someone right now. But Jesus had a pretty powerful connection to our heart condition and our behavior. And some of you have been murdering people in your hearts for a long time. They're dead to me. They're dead to me. Done with them. He says, don't murder. Why? Because it doesn't bring you freedom. And he's also saying this, he's saying, listen, if your freedom extends to a place where it ends someone else's freedom, that's not freedom anymore. I don't get to take my freedom and use it in such a way that it manipulates, twists and crushes and abuses your freedom. That's not freedom anymore, that's abuse. That's not how God operates, that's how the enemy operates. John and 1 John would say, I'm wondering who your father is then, if you think that that's okay, that behavior is okay. Because if your father is the king, you wouldn't treat other people that way. So God says, keep that off your list. That behavior is not going to help you. Then he says, hey, you shall not commit adultery. He says, don't commit adultery. Don't go into the most intimate relationships and violate those relationships. Don't break trust. Don't do that. He says, when you do that, it doesn't lead you to freedom. And so often we think, oh, it's going to be more free on the other side of just getting what I want. He says, how many times has that led to more freedom? It doesn't lead to more freedom. Puts you back in scenarios and cycles of slavery. And again, Jesus is like, listen, don't even sit around and fantasize about it. Don't even play through scenarios in your head. Well, if this just happened, then this could work. Because when you've done that, he says, you've already started the process Of doing that in your heart and in your core. Don't even let your mind go there. Don't get stuck into patterns of thinking. Why? Because you know some people who have been enslaved in their minds thinking about a different life that they might be able to chase after. He says, That's not freedom for you. That's not my best. He goes, Hey, while you're at it, don't steal. Isn't it interesting? It started with, here, understand who I am and who our relationship is. Don't have idols. Don't put false gods in there. Don't say I'm not who it is. Then it went to understand how you relate with other people. Don't violate them in order to be free. And we get that way. We get this way all the time. We think, ah, they won't notice. It's just... It's just extra of whatever, supplies of work. It's just whatever, you know. They they put this stuff out on the counter because they don't care what happens to it. And we just take and take and take. And it builds in us a sense of entitlement at the expense of somebody else. And he says, that's not how I want you to operate. Don't steal. Don't take what you didn't earn. He goes, I, and here's what it it, it teaches you to be self-reliant for everything and not trust that God has your best in mind. Why do you steal? Because you don't trust that God wants what's best for you. And so you think you have to take it because you're ultimately on your own. He says, that's that's not going to lead you to more freedom. It's going to lead you to more slavery. And he goes, okay, well, don't bear false witness then against your neighbor either. Now, this is tricky because it's like, don't lie on me. Don't say that I'm something that I'm not. Don't treat me like I'm something that I'm not. And here's the thing that was really hard for me. Because I, it's pretty easy for me to get, you know, don't make up a lie and say, hey, I saw Jeff over at Chris's house. Like, that's a dumb lie, but why would I do that? Here's the lie that we do make up all the time. Oh, he hasn't called me back yet? Psh, probably doing something he shouldn't be doing. Oh, they haven't called me for like a week? They must not care about me. Oh, they're, they're, they're not responding the way I think they should respond. They must not love me. They must, it must be all fake. It may not be real. They're being irresponsible. We start making up entire fantasies about other people in our minds, and we're lying about them. We don't know if that's the truth. We're projecting our own emotional baggage into this thing, and we haven't had the conversation, and God's like, that's going to get you so tied up relationally. Stop doing that. Knock it off. And the last thing he says is, and don't covet. Don't covet. Don't look at what someone else has as a blessing and take it as a curse to you that you didn't get it. Someone else got blessed and you feel like because they got blessed, you've been cursed. Well, I would have a boat too if my dad owned the company. I would have a, I would have a whatever, you know, bigger house if, if, you know, so-and-so wouldn't have jumped me in line for the thing and stole credit for, and we start coveting and we start getting this false narrative and somebody else's blessing becomes our curse. And we live our whole life looking around going, if I just had, I would have got the deluxe model like they got, I would have got the whatever. Now, isn't this a fascinating thing as we start walking through, those are the 10 commandments. And here's a God who looks down from heaven and says, listen, I brought you out of slavery. Let me give you some boundaries now. I came, I showed up, I showed you I wanted to be your God. I showed you I wanted to lead you. I showed you that I would provide for you. I showed you that I have a destiny and a place for you where you fit. And in all of those contexts, because I took you out of slavery, this is not, this is not, here's my list of how to put you back into slavery. This is, here's some boundaries that will help you so you don't walk back into the slavery I just pulled you out of. And those are the Ten Commandments. They're not quite as scary when we break them down that way, huh? It doesn't feel like this weight of a huge lump of rules. Like, oh, here comes God and all these rules anymore. It's amazing. Literally all of the commandments were designed to protect your freedom. To protect your freedom. It's like, got you out of slavery. Don't go back there. So there's just basic boundaries. And if you submit to these boundaries, they'll protect you from slavery. And you'll stay connected to me. If you'll just submit to these boundaries. If you'll just submit, submit, submit. Oh, you dropped the S-bomb in church. No one wants to hear about submission, Pastor. We hate submission. I know it's in the Bible, but submission, that's not freedom. How can you have submission in your freedom? That's the hook. I knew there was a hook coming, Pastor. I was waiting for you to tell me what the catch-22 was. And there's the catch. The catch is you want me to submit. Okay, let's talk about submission. Pastor uh, Andy Stanley, a great mentor and, and to many leaders, he says that mutual submission is the most powerful relational dynamic in the world. Mutual submission is the most powerful relational dynamic in the world. And here's what I mean. When we get into Ephesians, um, where it talks about all the submission stuff and where everyone gets all mad and tied in knots, we always start when it says, wives, submit to your husbands, right? And the wives are like, ah, and then it says, husbands, uh, submit to your wives. And you're like, ah, you know, I don't want that in my wedding. Let's get rid of that submission talk. We never start the line before that. That's verse 521, uh, Ephesians 521. 520 says, uh, and, and all of the context for everything that happens after that, uh, Ephesians 520 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The whole entire conversation about submission is connected to a mutual submission that the Bible talks about as the most powerful context for a relationship. So let me explain what this looks like it's scary if you don't know what submission means. Here's what submission means. Submission, the picture of submission in the scriptures is simply this. I take my strength, I take my power, my authority, my resource, and I... Put it underneath you to lift you up so that you can achieve something that you could not have achieved without my power, my strength, my influence, my resource. And then you take your power, your strength, your influence, your resource, and you give it to me to push me up to a place that I could not have achieved without your power, your strength, your uh, resource, your provision. And that's the picture that the scripture talks about as the catalyst for the most intimate and powerful relationships. In our lives, It says you've got to have submission. And in that same context, God says, I want to relate to you the same way. Wait, did you just say mutual submission in God? Yeah. Let me challenge your paradigm right here. Let me challenge this in you. I would challenge that God wants to have a relationship with you that's rooted in mutual submission, and he went first. He led the way. He demonstrated what that looked like so that you would get it. Pastor Mike, you're crazy. Let me just take you through a little life here. So, there's a picture in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah gets a picture of the throne room of God. And he's looking at Jesus sitting on the throne. And he describes this incredible picture. He says there's angels, there's seraphim, and there's cherubim, and they got wings and legs, and it's crazy. And he says they're covering their faces, and they're shouting with all their might. They're shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But it's louder than that. It's holy, holy, and it's so loud is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, who is to come. In fact, they're shouting so loud that Isaiah says in the temple where they were at, the stone and the pillars were shaking so that there was smoke in the temple because of the voice of the angels who are shouting to Jesus, holy, holy, Jesus has his own fog machine. It is smoke is filling the room, right? The lights are going off. He's on the throne. It's like, boom, party. No, that's not what happens. But that's the state of Jesus. And the next moment is the manger. And he's a baby. And he comes off the throne away from the presence and the power and the authority of the angels who are giving honor to him, who are lifting him up. And he goes straight to earth in a manger in Bethlehem to a family who's of no reputation. And shepherds show up. As the first witnesses, shepherds who's, who don't even have the legal authority in court because they're like treated like gypsies and wanderers, they show up and they see what's happening. And angels appear to them and tell them there's going to be a child. And they go and they see it. And they become the first evangelists, And they go into town and they say, we've seen the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's a baby. And then for 30 years, He basically lives in relative obscurity. He flees to Egypt for a while, comes back to Nazareth. He grows up. We know very little about his early life. For 30 years, he lives on earth, and this is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. After 30 years, we see a picture of him, and he's walking around the Sea of Galilee. He's like, hey, stop fishing. Come fish men with me. And people start following him and we see him break onto the scene. And for three years, he doesn't have a place to lay his head He doesn't have a steady income. He's not wealthy. He's not treated well everywhere he goes, but he walks and ministers and loves on people. And we see demonstrations of power. We see healing. We see food uh, displayed. We see incredible wisdom and truth about the nature and the character of God. And he begins to get a swelling of a following. And then something incredible happens. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And when he raises Lazarus from the dead, everything breaks. Because in their political structure, their Republicans and Democrats, their Pharisees and Sadducees, there was a war going on in the politics about life after death. And when he raised Lazarus from the dead, the ruling class was like, You've now messed up our entire paradigm of keeping us in power. You got to go. So the government comes and, uh, and, 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 falsely arrests him, arrests him, and they accuse him of claiming to be the king, which is treason. There's a mockery of a trial. At the end of the trial, he is beaten and flogged. He is whipped with a cat of nine tails. It literally rips the flesh off of his back. They bring him before the people, and they have another prisoner there who is a notorious, murderous person. And they have Jesus who's committed no crime. And they say, hey, it's our tradition to let one of these two guys go. We should probably let the guy who hasn't done anything go. And they say, no, give us Barabbas. What do you want us to do with Jesus? Crucify him. So they take three nails. And they put a nail through a wrist. And a nail through his other wrist. And a nail through his feet. And they hang him on a cross until he dies. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. A manger, obscurity, traveling and loving and serving people and murdered. And God reaches out from heaven with a hug and we go fist bump. Fist bump. And we see a picture of God saying, for this relationship to work, I'll take my strength, my power, my authority, and I'll lift you up from a place you can't get on your own, and I'll lift you up to a place of freedom. And then it's your turn to take your strength, your power, and authority and lift my name up so people who don't know how much I love them can know how much I love them. I don't want to submit. God's like, your move. See, so here's the problem with freedom. There's different kinds of freedom. <clears throat> Our paradigm of freedom gets all mixed up. There's, there's a, what we call a, a freedom from, and there's a freedom to. And freedom from is about consequences. I want to live my life without consequences. I don't want to obey anyone. I just want to be free. And we live in this horrible tension of going, I just want to be free. I just want to be free. But Here's the thing. I grew up around addicts. And I know something about what unrestrained freedom can look like. I grew up listening to conversations like, I can drink as much as I want whenever I want. Doesn't matter if it's 10 a.m. on a Monday. Doesn't matter if I got to work tomorrow. Doesn't matter if I have to drive. I'm free. And I listen to the same voices say, I want to stop and I can't stop. I want to stop and I can't stop. Why? Because running after things that we think make us free but want to enslave us comes with consequences. See, the law of the harvest is always at work. You're always reaping what you sow. I've watched people struggling for an internal freedom. You see, the soul isn't desiring the freedom to just do whatever it wants without consequence. What it's desiring is the freedom to become who you've designed to become without the weight of all the other stuff holding us down. It's things like this. I want to be kind, but I'm not as kind as I want to be. I want to be generous, but I'm not as generous as I want to be. I want to be honest, but I'm not as honest as I want to be. And, and there's an internal freedom that the soul is longing for, to be free in the identity of who you've been designed to be. And it's freedom for, so you can become who God wants you to be. It's an internal freedom. See, the great paradox of freedom is this. The freedom your soul craves is only found on the other side of surrender. It's a paradox. The freedom that your internal soul craves is only found on the other side of surrender. This is why James, the brother of Jesus, says this in James chapter one. He says, but if you look carefully into that perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says, and you don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. What is he saying? He's saying, if you look carefully into what God has asked of you, you will recognize that it is not there to put you in slavery. It's actually there to free you up. And if you live in that freedom, experiencing bless- you'll be experiencing blessings from God that you never imagined possible. I didn't know I could not be an addict. I didn't know I could have a new beginning with my relationships. I didn't know all of those things were available. I didn't know that I wasn't a slave to who I'd always been. I didn't know that I didn't have to become what someone else spoke to me that I had to become. I didn't know that freedom was available. But when I got into this book and I saw who God said I was and who God really is and I got into a relationship with him, it brought freedom to me. And I'm blessed. I'm blessed by doing it. David said it this way. He said, the instructions of the Lord are perfect and they revive the soul. Isn't that awesome? I don't know about you, but sometimes my soul needs a little reviving. David was a man, the scriptures say, a man after God's own heart who committed murder, adultery, probably didn't rest on the Sabbath sometimes. I don't know what else he did. He was good at breaking the commandments. I'm just saying. Yet the scriptures say he's a man after God's own heart. And he says, you know what happened for me to revive my soul? I leaned into the instructions in the word of God because I knew God. The Psalms are written. This is a guy who knew how to sit down and just express his heart out to God. And he says, I've blown it and I've messed up and I haven't been perfect, but your instructions never fail me. Your instructions revive my soul. Your words, the decrees of the Lord, they're trustworthy. They make wise the simple. I get messed up sometimes, but when I trust your word, I just look wise for doing it. Next verse. The, uh... Yeah, next verse. The commandments of the Lord are right. They bring joy to my heart. The commandments of the Lord are clear and they give me insight for living. What is he saying? He's saying they're right and they're joy giving. You know when I have joy? When I don't murder someone. (laughs) Just saying. It revives our soul when we trust him. When we make decisions based on knowing God and knowing what he's like. You're like, Pastor Mike, I hear you, but have you seen how long this book is? How many rules are in there? Well, I love that because Jesus faced this question, and we talk about this all the time, but he simplifies it for us. He says, all right, 10 commandments and some other stuff's a little complicated. So a guy walks up to Jesus and says, just give me the greatest commandment. Help me to get it straight. Like if I get like the first thing in right, how will this look? And he says, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied, well, love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, And with all your mind. And the second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then I love this picture, verse 40. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments all the law and the prophets hang. He says all of the stuff, all of the teaching, all of the boundaries, all of the don't wear denim and wool, all of the all of the stuff that's in there, all the stuff in the prophets. You're like, Pastor Mike, did you just say I don't have to read any of the prophets? No. I'm just saying if you don't understand the prophets, that's okay because if you get these two things right, Jesus says everything they're trying to communicate to us hangs. I think of it like a, like a hanger where you throw a jacket on the hanger and it holds everything up. He's like, this The whole thing hangs on getting these two pieces right and they're relational pieces. Love God with your soul, with your heart, with your thinker, with what's inside of you. Know him personally and intimately and have that same kind of love that you have for yourself for one another. And if you do that part right, you'll accomplish, you ain't going to murder anybody. You won't steal from them. You won't put another God first. You won't, uh, you won't uh, 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 give your life away to things you shouldn't give your life away to. You'll rest. He says, you gotta get those things right. And he's like, it's just relational. If you really knew me and you were with me, those things would make sense and you would get it. And so, so you're like, well, Pastor Mike, I'm trying to figure this out. How do I do this? And God's just saying, listen, it's the same conversation I've been having the whole way since the beginning. From Revelations, I stand at the door and a knock. Hey, can I be with you? I know you've got a big thing going on this week. Can we spend some time together? you got a big decision at work you're going to have to make. Can we, can we start one another together? Hey, you're making a decision about this relationship that you're about to get into. Can we spend some time together first? Can you trust me and spend time with me? And here's the king of the universe saying, I don't want to have a fist bump relationship with you. I'm coming in for the hug. I'm coming in for the intimacy. I want to know you. Matter of fact, I already know you. I want you to know how much I know you and still love you how much i've seen your failures and seen the inner workings of you and the thoughts of you and all of those things and still love you and have even more for you he says i want that kind of intimacy and closeness with you jesus says john chapter 8 verse 32 then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free He goes on to say in that same passage, so if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. You see, there's a kind of freedom that's only available on the other side of submission. But what does God want you to submit to? Relationship. He says, I'm coming in for the hug. I'm coming in for the intimacy. I'm coming in for the closeness. And I want to know you. But I won't force that on you. I'm on the door and I'm knocking. And this entire story is God telling the people that he created, I designed you in the garden for something so much more than you're experiencing. And I want you to have that. But if you run from that and you chase after other things, they're gonna try to ensnare you and they're gonna try to take your heart and your life and your love from you. And you can have so much more. It's not a list of make sure you don't do these things so I don't lightning bolt you from heaven. It's saying, I just want you to be free. Would you stand? I was struck, as we're closing, by the power and authority that free people have. The power and authority that free people. Because free people free other people. It was a free person named Moses who went into Egypt who said, I know my assignment and I know who God is and said to the most powerful government on earth, you let my people go. It was a free trio of friends, though their entire nation was in captivity who said, I'm not going to bow because I know who my creator is and I know who God is. And I know that though you throw me in the fire and the furnace, that my God is able to save me. But even if he does not, I'm still free and I will not bow. And God saved them. It was a free young man who knew God, who looked across a battlefield at a giant who was mocking the people of God and said, okay, you come at me with sword and shield, but I come at you in the name of the living God who saved me from the lion and from the bear and is able to defeat you. Ping. And he drills him. And we don't talk in Sunday school enough about the fact that he cut his head off. That's awesome. Kill some giants. Why is that important? Because he was free and he freed everybody else. And you can go to story after story. You can go to Elijah. You can go throughout the scriptures. You can get to the New Testament. And you can look at Peter and the transformation that happens in him once he's free. And the fear that's gone from him. And the way that he breaks social and relational and cultural boundaries with Cornelius. And you can see Paul saying, you can throw rocks at me and kill me if you want to. It's even better for me if I die. But it's better for you if I don't die yet. Because there's more coming out of me to set more loose in you. And you look throughout history and you can look at the Martin Luther King Juniors and you can look on and on and on at free men and free women who believed that God had a plan and a purpose for them. And because of who God is in them, that they could release freedom in others. And I look in this room and I say, who's free who knows that they have a relationship with God, that nothing's impossible for him who believes that it doesn't limit you, that God is, is not saying that you have to make a decision you either obey me or else you're free. He's saying, no, 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 no. When you obey me, you will be free. And in that freedom, you can release freedom in others. And that's our assignment while we're here. So God, in this moment, I just recognize I'm in a room full of potential power to release chains to break bondage to bring truth and identity and reality not just into our own lives but for it to spill out into others and I'm just thinking God can, can you imagine the difference it would make in our families if the if, if just as ambassadors we went into that and just recognizing that we're free. We're not tied up. We're not bound to our history. We don't have to be who we've always been. We don't carry the sin and the guilt and the shame of our past into the future. We're free. Can you imagine if we went into our workplaces and we began to just influence the lives and the cultures there by, by just understanding hey, we are free. When we live for you, there's nothing that's impossible for us. We're free. Can you imagine the difference it would make in our neighborhood and in our community, in our school districts and all of the places we have influence? If we were just ambassadors of that freedom, saying, we are free and you can be free too. If you would just not resist the love of the Father, he would come and make all things new. So we invite you into our lives. <laughs> we in invite you to fill us to the point where it spills out of us. We understand you've given us 2 Corinthians five sixteen ish the ministry of reconciliation, that we just tell others the truth of what you accomplished, why you sent your son, that you made the first move that you submitted so that we could be free, so that we could have access to your strength, your power, your resource, And so we then partner and give you our strength and our power, our resources and our influence so that others could know. And we see soul after soul after soul come into relationship with you and freedom just get released all over the place. That's the cry of our heart. Our soul needs it, God. And so we invite you and we just say we love you back and we thank you in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, come on. Amen, listen. Go be free. Just go be free.